Why is it that when prosperity smiles on black folk, there's always a level of white resentment? That's the thesis of a provocative piece Yale professor Elijah Anderson just penned for The Atlantic. I highly recommend, highly, highly, highly recommend that you read it. It's called Back Black Success, White Backlash. That's the actual title. Uh, at the Atlantic, you can find it, Black Success, White Backlash. So again, this question, why is it that when prosperity smiles on us, there's always a level of white resentment? Uh, I am pleased now to be joined by Elijah Anderson to unpack this resentment and how it makes life exhausting for many of us and oftentimes leads to the undoing of policies that have nurtured black advancement. Um, uh, and I really want to get to that part of the story as we say that part. Uh, but I'm pleased once again to be in dialogue with Elijah Anderson of Yale. Professor Anderson, how are you today, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Fine, fine. It's good to have you on, and thank you for this time to sort of unpack this piece. Uh, let me start. Oh, we, we, so, nice, to, nice to be with you. No, no, thank you for you. Thank you for your time, sir. It's an honor to have you on. Um, so let me start by saying we have an hour, and so we've got some time to unpack this. So you don't need to uh, speak in sound bites. Uh, I, so I wanted, I really wanted to sort of delve into this piece you wrote for the Atlantic. Let me just start though by passing the mic to you and asking you to share with the audience, who uh, many of whom have not, of course, read the piece as yet. They will get it now uh, that I brought it to their attention. Again, Black Success, White Backlash at the Atlantic. You got to read it. Um, but give me your thesis, uh, uh, Professor Anderson. Give me your thesis here. Well, well, basically, uh, I mean, since the uh, since the days of slavery. Um, and slavery, and as you appreciate, established the black body at the bottom of the order. And um, this was uh, made very clear, of course, by slavery itself. But in 1857, um, uh, Justice Taney remarked that uh, black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. And while he was dealing with the Dred Scott decision, and this was the head of the Supreme Court at the time, and the issue was whether to extend slavery to the new territories. I mean, um, he was commenting on the status of black people at the time, and he simply uh, declared <clears throat> that black people had no rights that white people were bound to respect. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1857, you see. And of course, we, uh, when the, I mean, we had the Civil War, and then blacks were emancipated, and the uh, migrated from plantations to cities and towns of the South, as well as the North. And oftentimes these were, you know, sundown towns, and since you had to be out, you know, by uh, dark if you were black. Mm -hmm. But black people, as they made their trek northward or wherever, uh, they had to work, and of course they settled on the outskirts of these white towns. And this is very significant because... Um, the white people they knew or met or encountered or worked for knew that they were lonely, you see. In fact, the white people had become socially invested in the lonely place of black people. And this was established by slavery, but then passed on and institutionalized uh, and passed on from generation to generation. So people knew this. They understood this. So when black people uh, entered their place, they knew that these black people, whoever they were, lower than them. Mm. So just by being white, you were assumed to be better than black people. And black and white people became deeply invested in that. Now, <clears throat> the communities where the black people uh, gravitated to, oftentimes on the outskirts of these white enclaves, these white towns, basically reinforced what slavery established. 
and that was the lonely place of black people. And over over time, over history, the history shows that every time there's a, a black advance, you know, uh, there's a there's a backlash typically to put black people back in their place mm. because the place is, is more comfortable to people who buy into that ideology, that dominant ideology, if you will, established by slavery, which uh, established black people at the bottom of the order. Yeah. And that's in short what has been happening over the years, you see. So every time black people make advances, there are people who are helped supportive, you know, not white people. But there are also people who are deeply invested in this notion that black people are lowly and undeserving, you see. Mm-hmm. And this has been a historic, uh, uh, you know, uh, a situation that has repeated itself yeah. from time to time. Nope, I get it. I get it. Uh, and uh, that is the foundation that I wanted Professor Anderson to lay. I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, but now that we've laid the foundation, uh, I'm ready to jump. Uh, and interrogate this uh, this notion that we all know to be true. But there's a whole lot to talk about uh, regarding the lowly place, as he put it, the lowly place that black people occupy this country. We are at the bottom of the pecking order, as it were. Uh, and uh, to his point, there are folk deeply invested in us remaining in this low place. You heard him say that there's always this uh, attempt to put black folk in their place. I am curious as to what uh, he thinks, they think, the place is that black folk need to stay in in 2023 in this present moment. What is our place uh, in this place called America? Just getting started with Elijah Anderson and his piece uh, about uh, black success uh, and white backlash. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley and Elijah Anderson of Yale, who's written a provocative and profound piece called Black Success, White Backlash, about how black prosperity has provoked white resentment, uh, making life exhausting for us uh, uh, decades and decades and decades on end in this uh, place called America. Uh, It's a piece in The Atlantic that I recommend that you read. And I'm delighted to unpack a little bit for uh, of it for you, top line it for you, as it were, uh, over the course of this hour uh, that we are honored to have Elijah Anderson uh, in uh, conversation. Professor Anderson, let me start with this uh, again. Lot, lot to lot to interrogate in this hour. Um, you made you made the point that there are folk in this country who are deeply invested uh, then and now in keeping us and yeah. seeing us uh, in this lowly place, as you put it, as black people. Let me ask this question, and you can answer it in the context of then. And you can answer it, if you wish, in the context of now. My question is whether or not us being in that lowly place, uh, us staying in our place, has more to do with their view that we are inferior or more of their view that they are intimidated by the possibilities if we are allowed to be everything that God created us to be. So is it inferiority or is it intimidation or something I'm missing altogether? Well, it's complicated, for sure, for sure. But I think we start with slavery mm-hmm. and we and, and, and then emancipation, you see. Because after emancipation, as I indicated, uh, black people began to, to move forward, of course, um, to, to the cities and towns of the, of, of the South and, and of the North, <clears throat> making their way. Uh, of course, uh, there were sundown towns 
uh, in which black people had to be be out by sundown or be harassed, uh, sometimes arrested, sometimes put on chain gangs, and sometimes their contracts were sold to corporations, a practice that uh, uh, persisted until the 1970s, you see. Mm. And if you complained and acted up, you could have your time extended. Mm-hmm. So this was slavery by another name, if you will. But but basically what we have here is uh, is the black the physical black community on the outskirts of many white white towns you see in cities and um, and, and basically uh, the white folks knew the black folks knew that uh, black people lived in the in, in, in the black side of town or, or the black town in the space uh, adjacent to white communities uh, it was clear that black that white people basically felt that they were different but also better than uh, the black people, you see, and and this idea persisted, uh, and it, it established and reinforced white over black, you see, and in this scenario, as I indicated, many many people, or most people became the white people, and it became deeply invested in this notion, and it became institutionalized mm-hmm. and passed on from one generation to the next, and the next, and the next. And the next, and the next. Until now, today, this relationship, this positionality manifests itself in the hood versus the larger white community in cities all over the country, you see. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the black community is no longer just a physical space, I argue, in my newest book, Black and White Space. Uh, it has become an icon, an image, a symbol that hovers over black people as they make their way in civil society, and especially in white spaces, you see. Mm-hmm. And so what that means, though, is I found out in this uh, research I, I did for this book, is that the, the black person today who navigates white space as a perceptual category, you know, uh, this person is burdened with a negative presumption that he or she has to disprove in order to build trusting relations with other people in that white space. Mm. This is the main finding of the book. I just published Black and White Space in 2022 mm-hmm. by the University of Chicago Press. This book is, is out, available in paperback right now. But, but this is what has happened, you see. This icon is really very important. And the icon as it saddles on black people, as it follows black people around, as it hovers over black people, gives them a deficit of credibility mm. compared to the white people in these settings, if you follow me. I do. And this all goes back historically, you see, beginning with slavery. Well, um, I'm trying to think as you're talking, this, this is getting good, as we say around here, it's getting rich. Um, I, I can't think of another people uh, on the planet unless I'm missing something, you tell me, that walk into a room and their immediate presence means they have to push back against this negative presumption, as you put it. When they walk into the room, they walk into the room with a deficit of credibility. Are there any other folk like us in the, in the, in the globe, on the globe that have to walk into a room and encounter all that the minute you step in? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I laugh because uh, this was established during slavery. As mm-hmm. I said before, slavery as an institution, as an ideology, established black people at the very bottom of the order. 
and everybody knew that, you see. And as Justice Taney said in 1857, um, black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. He says that in the Red Scott decision. Sure. And it, 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 it's important that, uh, you know, it was a, it was a feeling, a thought, uh, a, a notion that uh, people uh, it, at that time were invested in. But over the years, uh, succeeding generations became deeply invested in this positionality. And, uh, and it was passed on from generation yeah. to generation. Tell me, tell, to generation, tell, tell, tell me, tell me more about how you think, um, what you just laid out now that's in your, in your latest text, um, uh, this black icon, <clears throat> this black icon that sort of hovers over us and, uh, and, and covers us and we can't seem to escape it. Um, I, I hear, I hear that, that thesis loud and clear. Uh, I, I wonder how you think black folk regard the notion of community these days. That's worth unpacking to me. Right. Uh, King, King famously called it, of course, the beloved community. Uh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure it's that anymore, but you call it the black community. He called it the beloved community. Let's talk about that word community uh, next to the word black. Well, I mean, basically, uh, black communities were established all over the country, not, not just in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which we know so much about recently mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. the, the ways in which that came, came to light. But you can go back to Lorraine, Arkansas. You can see that Tulsa's happened all over the country. Yes. You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and basically these were these black communities on the outskirts of white communities, and the, the black people bought into their segregation. They're trying to, to, to not only maintain those communities but to develop them and, and and live a life apart from the white people. And when they when they seem to be doing so well, I mean, a lot of white people got upset with that. Now many. Uh, you know, coexisted, but there were always the ruffians, the, the 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 struggling white folks who just couldn't tolerate the fact that these black people were doing so well, mm-hmm. and they would harass them. The younger people would harass them, and and uh, you know it was like a fire, you know powder cake sometimes. And when things got really out of hand, like like a, a black person was accused of raping a white woman or something like that, we had trouble. You see, yep. and then the whole community was subject to attack. And, 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 and devastation by these, uh, these people. It happened in Tulsa. It yeah. happened in Lorraine, Arkansas. And there were towns all over the country where this happened and people were lynched, if you yeah. know what I mean. That's not to say that there were not decent white people sure. who you know, looked askance at this, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But you always had people who, um, who were on the other side of that issue and who, who absolutely felt that their own rights were being abrogated by the moving up the mobility, upward mobility of black people, you say. Yeah, let, let, me, let, let, me, let me jump in here because um, I, I want to press on this. I raised this earlier, uh, and I want to come back to it because you are uh, obviously a, a, a sociologist uh, extraordinaire, a recent recipient of the Stockholm Prize, uh, a laureate of that. Um, so your your honors, uh, your honors and accolades speak to, to your brilliance and Yale is blessed to have you. So I, I want to come back to this. I asked earlier whether or not you you thought or think that um, keeping us in this lowly place has more to do with their view that we are inferior or whether or not they are intimidated by us. And you're, you chose to answer that by saying, Tavis, it's complicated. I, I, was, I, I, I received that answer. I received that answer. But here's why I'm going. Here's why I'm going back, and I'm not naive in asking this question. 
I'm going back because you said you, you said to me earlier that there are no people on the face of the of the planet, no folk on this mm-hmm. globe who walk into a room with a negative presumption, no folk on the planet who walk into a room with a deficit of credibility, and unless I'm missing something, no folk in this country who white folk get so upset about their prosperity. Um, the way they do with us, they don't feel that way about any other culture. They are not that in, they're not to use your phrase. They are not that deeply invested emotionally when other folks succeed, but they are that deeply invested when we succeed. Again, I am not naive in asking that you're the expert. You're the sociologist. My question is why us? Why us? Okay. Okay. And this is, and this is a relative thing because you see, we live in a pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. That means many different groups. And within this society, one can imagine the hierarchies and all. The various groups are distributed within the system in people's minds, you see. Mm-hmm. And in people's minds, uh, black people, I, I think, typically hold the, low, the, low, the lowest uh, rung of that in their minds, which means that other people, when I say that when black people uh, navigate white space, quote-unquote, I mean, they're burdened with this deficit of credibility uh, that they have to deal with. They have to have uh, this negative presumption. They have to negotiate their way uh, and make their way. And, and, and people do it, you see. I mean, I mean, they have to basically work to disabuse people of the notion that these stereotypes apply to them personally. Yeah. And so they negotiate their way. So the people in that white space could be uh, of all different colors, you know. They can even be black <laughs> mm-hmm. as part of the white space. And these new people coming in who are assumed to be part of the iconic ghetto, as I call it, have to negotiate with all these people, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll go back to the statement I made again. That, um, And this is a chief finding of the book I wrote, uh, Black and White Space. When a black person navigates or enters white space, they're burdened with a negative presumption that they must disprove in order to build trusting relations with others in that space, you see. And the others uh, typically are white, but they can be of other um, groups who are making their way in that white space as well, including black people themselves sometimes, if you know what I mean. I wanna, I'm, I'm going sure. to come to that, including black folk themselves. You said a couple of times, I heard it loud and clear. I'm going mm-hmm. I'm, I'm to give you a chance to unpack that as we move forward, sure. uh, these black folk themselves. Let me ask you this question again. You are a noted sociologist. When black folk have perennially walked into mm-hmm. a room with a negative presumption, when we have perennially walked into a room with a deficit of credibility and have to disprove, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how is it that black people navigate these spaces having to internalize that? Put another way, what does the internalization of that reality do to black folk long term? Yeah, well, it makes people nervous, insecure, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When people uh, navigate that space, they negotiate with the people there, you see. And one of the ways they do it is by is, is by is by by a, a kind of performance or a dance, so to speak, mm. to disabuse people of the notion that their stereotypes apply to them personally, and they can do it, <laughs> and oftentimes do do it. Mm. If you know what I mean, they negotiate their way, and the problem is that the, the issue is never solved. As I point out in my new book, uh, what what happens most often is that people negotiate their way; they they make their way. Uh, to a, a, a kind of a provisional status, so to speak, mm-hmm. always having something more to prove because the audience they're performing for typically 
um, is distant uh, and, and, and oftentimes unsympathetic and, and had their minds already made up mm-hmm. and what, about and, where the black person belongs. And, 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 and where the black person belongs is in the hood, in yeah. the minds of a lot of people. No, in that, in that lowly place. I, I, I hear you loud and clear. So let me ask you this. What happens to those black folk who refuse to do that negotiation? What happens to those black folk who refuse to do that, let me put it this way, that disabuse dance that you talked about earlier? I'm going to call it the disabuse dance. For those who refuse to do the disabuse dance, what happens to them? Well, they run into, and excuse me for saying this because it's a horrible word, but uh, black people I studied uh, call it this. They run into the nigger moments, mm-hmm. a, mo- a mo- moment of acute disrespect. Oh yeah, based on their blackness. Now this is now this nigger moment can be small, or it can be big. Mm. <clears throat> the small ones uh, people deal with. This is the black tax that people pay. Yeah, the big ones can get you killed. The big mm. ones can make you lose your job. The big ones can uh, can can be a big drama for you. You see, mm-hmm. and and because you're making your way, uh, you become utterly disturbed by this and in need of counseling sometimes. Yeah. And this is what black people do. This no. is what I found out in my book, uh, Black and White Space. Yep. Now you call, again, it, this is a, nope, you call it, you call it, you call it the nigger moment. I hear you loud and clear. Our friend Cornell. Well, this is not my word. This is my no, word. No, I get it. <laughs> no, I get it. You ain't got, you ain't got to explain yourself. I've been black my whole life. And so is this audience. They understand it. Uh, they know what a nigger moment is, or as Cornell West calls it, niggerization. Uh, whatever word you choose to use, that's what happens. You will have that moment if you don't do that disabuse uh, that disabuse dance. Uh, we'll we'll pause there for the moment. Uh, this is getting good. Uh, more when we come forward with Elijah Anderson, his piece. In case you've just tuned in, it's called "Black Success: White Backlash." We're talking about uh, white resentment that makes life exhausting for so many of us, and we haven't even got to the part yet about how it leads to undoing policies that have uh, nurtured black advancement. Uh, a lot more to come when we come forward with Elijah Anderson on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Right number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. If you have missed any part of this conversation, I can assure you, you're going to want to check out the podcast. As I say every day on this program, you can always go to the TavisSmileyShow.com, the TavisSmileyShow.com to listen to the podcast of any conversation, any part of any conversation that you might have missed. And if you haven't missed anything, you, 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 I'm sure you'll want to hear this one again. But if you missed any part, check out the, the and listen to the podcast of this conversation at your leisure. We are talking with uh, Yale sociologist uh, Elijah Anderson. Uh, his uh, piece uh, for The Atlantic uh, is called Black Success, White Backlash. Uh, his new book is called Black in White Space. Uh, we're interrogating a piece he recently wrote for uh, The Atlantic, again called Black Success, White Backlash, about black prosperity and why black advancement always seems to, to, to provoke uh, white resentment that makes life a little difficult, challenging, and exhausting for, the, for, the, for those of us who are on the wrong end of this stick, this receiving end, to have to navigate uh, life in America. Uh, and moreover, um, how this white resentment can at times and has in fact led to the undoing of policies that have nurtured black advance. We'll get to that as we advance uh, in this in this conversation. But I want to I want to come just very quickly back to what we were talking about uh, earlier in this conversation. And that is whether 
we are maltreated in this way, whether we are seen uh, and kept in this lowly place as black folk, either because of their uh, belief that we are inferior or because they are intimidated. Either way, your point is well taken that this belief, this notion has been institutionalized. Talk to me then about the institutionalization of this notion that we belong in a lowly place. Well, we live in a pluralistic society, and that simply means that we live with many different groups. And another way of looking at this situation is that people uh, making up this pluralistic society um, compete for place and position, oftentimes on the basis of their particularities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 of course, the race comes into play, ethnicity becomes in, into play, sexual preference and what have you can come into play. So people people um, compete for place and position, but given the fact that, that that white people are dominant in the society, the white people typically have the advantage in terms of being able to make things work for them. And so, with respect to um, uh, black folk, uh, the white folk uh, quickly develop, no matter what ethnicity they are, they tend to develop this sense of group position vis-a-vis uh, the black people, and so. That sense of group position basically uh, uh, orders the system and and underscores the fact of black place uh, at a lowly place compared to other groups, you see. And so these people who are making their way in that hierarchy oftentimes develop an interest in keeping uh, black people <clears throat> in their place, so to speak. So there's a dynamic is what I'm suggesting. You know, it's not an either or proposition. Mm-hmm. There's a dynamic going on, you see. Yep. And so uh, black people can rise and, and 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 be middle class, can be up middle class, but oftentimes that position is precarious because of what I'm talking about here. And I leave this out of my book, uh, Black in White Space. Mm-hmm. But after that book, I, I've written a series of books, uh, all building to this point. Sure. My first book, Placed on the Corner, I spent three years on one street corner in Chicago, a place on the corner for my dissertation, which became my first book. Mm-hmm. The second book was Streetwise, about a gentrifying community in Philadelphia. The third book was Code of the Street. The fourth book was The Cosmopolitan Canopy. And the sequel to that book is Black and White Space, you see. Mm-hmm. So all these books represent, over the years, over the past half century, really uh, my body of ethnographic work. And this is this is the latest one, black and white spirit. Let me let me ask you a quick question about that, and I want to move forward to some other issues I want to cover here. Um, you've dedicated uh, over half century of your life um, to telling this story in Chicago, in Philadelphia, and beyond. Um, why? I'm I'm just curious as to why every everybody chooses, or either you choose a life's mission, or it chooses you. Uh, but it's clear that there's a mission statement. Uh, for your life, and, I, and I'm curious as to how this became your mission statement, Elijah Anderson. Okay, I was born in the Mississippi Delta, mm. on what used to be a slave plantation, and at the age of two, my folks went to the cotton field each day, I made their move uh, to the north. My daddy was a, a factory worker in South Bend, Indiana. He, he uh, worked at Studebaker, mm-hmm. and my mother worked as a domestic, and I grew up on the streets in the community there, and came of age during the civil rights movement, which culminated in, in riots and rebellions all over the country. 
And at that moment, um, you know, I graduated from IU. I think you went to IU too. I did indeed. I graduated. Yeah. I, I went to IU. I graduated in 1969. And in that moment, uh, there was there was a great uh, effort to bring black people into the system because the, the riots were so horrible. But also there was also this, uh, I mean, increasing militancy and anger on the part of young black people. And they needed to cool this out. So a number of people were killed. I mean, people like Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, and many mm-hmm. others were killed. But they opened the doors for those of us who were perhaps more moderate, and we made our way uh, into the system. And the funny thing is that as we made our way, there were oftentimes no no, no help. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they, they were basically trying hard to um, to to bring people in because there was a, a larger project going on, and that had to do with the Cold War. And the fact that so many developing countries were, were looking at which way to go, whether to follow the Soviets or whether to follow the West. And the West, uh, namely this country, uh, didn't look very good racially. And so they had a great interest in bringing black people forward. And uh, for all the problems that existed in terms of like alienation and anger and rioting and militancy, they're... Um, they're um, <laughs> Their piece of it was affirmative action. We'll give you affirmative action. Oh yeah. So that's what they gave us, and so this 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 set the stage for racial incorporation, which is really another way of saying that black people move from the ghetto to the white space, so to speak. And this is where we are. And as we move into the white spaces, of course, uh, this is the subject of my new book. Yeah. What happens to people? Well, they run into this deficit of credibility in part because they're associated with the iconic ghetto itself, you see, mm-hmm. until they can prove otherwise. Yep. And this this, uh, this is what this is. And of course, as they deal with this, um, they run into the backlash. Yep. I, I love I love that phrase. Uh, it's 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 hard to wrap your brain around, but it, it, it's it's spot on uh, until they can prove otherwise. Uh, you are wrestling with a negative presumption. You are wrestling with a deficit of credibility until you can prove otherwise. Uh, You heard Professor Anderson say earlier in this conversation that oftentimes in these white spaces, the folks aren't always white. Uh, They're black. Uh, We don't use this word uh, randomly around here, but uh, we've used it a couple of times in conversation because it's part of his research. And he he used it to make a point. But I think about Chris Rock and that comedy special some time back. Well, he made a distinction between black folk and niggas. There are niggas and there are black folk. You all recall the Chris Rock comedy bit. I want to come to that uh, because you heard, again, Professor Anderson say moments ago that sometimes in these spaces there are black folk, too, who look down on other black folk and believe that certain black folk belong in this low place. And then I want to talk as well when we come forward about um, the flip side of this negative presumption uh, negative presumption that is, and this deficit of credibility is that there's some black folk in these spaces who are craving, looking for, uh, titillated by the normative white gaze. We should talk, we should talk about that as well. Um, I love this conversation. His name is Elijah Anderson. You're listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth, the truth. Speaking, Speaking the truth. The truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley, Smiley Show. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. 
Indeed you are. Some breaking news here. We've been covering this um, story, of course, since our first hour today. Uh, these things are dynamic and changing by the moment. Uh, but CNN reporting uh, that it looks worse for Jim Jordan than anticipated. He appears to not have the votes to be elected Speaker of the House. Hakeem Jeffries um, has 212 votes. Jim Jordan, 220 others uh, uh, went their own way. Um, so, uh, 435 members of the house, uh, Jordan does not appear at this moment to have the votes for speakership. So, uh, there's vote one. Uh, you recall it took 15 rounds to get Kevin McCarthy a speaker. Who knows how long it will take for Jim Jordan to win. Should he ever win? Uh, but, did, uh, but at the moment he does not appear to have the votes for speakership. So McCarthy couldn't pull it off, uh, a second time, at least when they, uh, uh, caught him on the carpet. Steve Scalise tried, and he didn't have it. Jim Jordan has tried, and he doesn't have it. Uh, and so the drama in the U.S. House continues even as we speak right now. We'll continue to follow this uh, in the coming hours and see where this takes us. But this is, uh, as my grandmother, Big Mom, used to say, a hot mess. It's a hot mess. Speaking of Mississippi, uh, uh, I, I, I love the, the – uh, the parallels between the life of Elijah Anderson and yours truly. Uh, I am no scholar, nowhere near the scholar, the brilliant, brilliant brother that he is. But we were both born in Mississippi, both educated at Indiana University. And I'm just a lowly talk show host, but he is a brilliant scholar uh, at Yale, uh, leading sociologist. And I'm honored to have him on this program. Again, his piece is called Black Success, White Backlash. Highly recommend you read it in The Atlantic. Uh, his new book is called Black in white space. He's written so many great books over the years, building up to this moment, uh, really putting uh, ethnographic uh, his ethnographic footprint on America, if you will, a place on the corner, street rise, cold of the street, et cetera, et cetera. Now the latest uh, black in white space. Let me ask you right quick, right quick, right quick, watching my time here. Um, you indicted earlier. I, I use the word indictment. You indicted earlier uh, these black folk who sometimes appear in this uh, in these white spaces and they, too, oftentimes think that black folk occupy a low space. Talk to me about them Negroes right quick, if you will. <laughs> well, I mean, basically, um, the incorporate, I mean, what, we've, what we've witnessed over the past 50 years basically is a profound racial incorporation process and uh, led by affirmative action. Um, and and this, this was really a radical thing that uh, Johnson uh, proposed and, and carried out. This is major because it brought black people essentially uh, into white spaces and it placed a premium on black black people uh, for the second time in history, the first time being slavery. Mm -hmm. And this is very important. When I was coming out of college, I mean, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't be in a hotel elevator with a suit and tie without somebody saying, you need a job, you need a job, you know, I mean, it was, it was like that in that day and time. And this was important because every, because, because the situation was so uh, stark in that black people lived in the hood and white people were in the other spaces and they wanted to rectify this, uh, you know, for issues that had to do with civil rights, the movement, all that, but also the international situation in which uh, developing countries were, were looking at who to follow, you see, unaligned countries, right. uh, colonial situations where, you know, we, America didn't look very good. Uh, and the Soviet Union was saying, we're the better system, you see. So it was incumbent on Democrats and Republicans and the president to make America seem or appear like America 
that shining city on the hill, so to speak. Yeah, when the whole and world, we, when the whole world is watching, <laughs> the whole world is watching. You, you have to appear, as you said, to be that shining city on the hill. Although uh, what's happening in the streets tells a very different story. Our remaining moments with Professor Elijah Anderson when we come forward on Tavis Smile. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. I don't normally ask two questions at the same time. That's not how you want to conduct a conversation. But let me do this right quick. Ask two questions, get out of your way, and give you the last three minutes that I've got. And it's a tight three, Professor Anderson. Uh, what about these black folk who are in these rooms who really are just craving uh, the, the the normative white gaze? And finally, uh, say a word about how this resentment of black people oftentimes undoes policies. Uh, leads to the undoing of policies that have nurtured black advancement. you got three minutes to answer both of those. Take it away. <laughs> well, I mean, basically, the people in the white spaces oftentimes, not always, uh, have a certain precarious existence, if you will. And this encourages them towards a certain ritualism, that is, the, the propriety, that kind of thing. And with respect to propriety, uh, under the white gaze, uh, they try to try to be right or correct, as it were. And people coming from the iconic ghetto in, in their minds may upset the apple cart, and so they, they watch such people closely, uh, typically, because they're trying to make their own way. And it's not just these black people, but anybody who's marginal in that situation is holding on to uh, their status um, becomes uh, concerned with propriety, that kind of thing. And the iconic <clears throat> Negroes, so to speak, quote-unquote, <clears throat> oftentimes upset or threatened that uh, Threaten that security, if you will. So that's what I thought of my book. That comes out in the ethnographic study, Black and White Series. The other piece is that um, uh, we have made a lot of progress over the years. We now have the biggest black middle class in American history, you see. And many white people uh, supported that. You have to understand that that's very important, you know. Um, but many others felt that their own rights were being abrogated as black people made their moves into these spaces, if you will. Sure. And that has to get entangled, you see. Black people, when they navigate white space, I say in my book, look for or understand there are three types of white people. There are white people who basically are okay with, with, with black people, even support them. <clears throat> and they're, they're, they're black people. I mean, they're white people who just don't like black people. But there's also this wide swath of white people who have no... Uh, observable racial animus and the challenge for the black person in these spaces is to figure out which is which <laughs> and, then to get out, and, and then to get out of the way this yeah. is what I found in my in my in my study yeah. um, and this is this is major but <clears throat> given this incorporation process the uh, people who are <clears throat> oftentimes uh, upset and disturbed that group has grown since uh, yeah. These policies were initiated, you see, and now they have Donald Trump and people like that supporting their No, their I see I see where you're headed. They got Donald Trump, uh, and that's how we get to them. Uh, the backlash. The backlash. I get it. And undoing the policies that have nurtured uh, black Absolutely. advancement. Well, well, well good, luck, good luck, black people, uh, as you go in these spaces trying to figure out which white person is which. There are three different types of white people we now know. And good luck to you trying to figure out which one is which. The piece is called Black Success, White Backlash. Uh, I recommend reading it at The Atlantic. Uh, and his latest text is called uh, Black in White Space. He is Yale's Elijah Anderson. I'm out of time for Anderson. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you, sir, for coming on the program. I enjoyed this 
immensely. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. All the best to you, my friend. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.